Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the I Believe podcast. Thank you again to Castle Biosciences for um, helping us make this possible. And we have with us today Dr. Scheffler. She's actually on a vacation in Costa Rica right now, so we're catching her at the only time that we can catch her. Um, And I wanted to just have her introduce herself, tell us a little bit more about her and her story and kind of her background with ocular oncology and why she became a retina specialist as well. Um, So I guess, you know, we're going to start there. So Dr. Chef, you want to tell us a little bit about your background in the field? Of course. Well, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here, connect with all your patient fans. So a little bit of my background. I grew up in New York City, decided that I wanted to go to medical school during high school, but didn't know what kind of doctor I wanted to be. I went to Yale University undergraduate. I went to Cornell for medical school. And then I headed down to Miami, Florida to Bascom Palmer Institute, where I did my residency training and my vitreoretinal surgery training and my ocular oncology training. Did some extra training in New York City at Memorial Sloan Kettering as well as at Wills along the way and stayed on the faculty of Bascom Palmer for a couple of years before I landed in Houston, Texas, which is where I am now. I work uh, with Retina Consultants of Texas, which is the largest retina group in town, and I treat uveal melanoma patients at Houston Methodist Hospital, which is one of the very large hospital systems there in Houston. And I've been there now 10 years and our service has grown tremendously. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to work and to take care of patients. That's awesome. So you guys have lived in Texas for most of the time that you've been working with them, correct? I was in Miami for eight years and I've now been in Texas for 10 years. So Awesome. Yeah, that happened, okay, well, but that's... I call Texas home now. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're grateful that you're joining us here all the way from Costa Rica. Um, I'm jealous. <laughs> I get to go to the beach in a week, so I'll be there soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we have kind of a few different questions that we wanted to talk to you about, just as far as the like what you know what's new in research and kind of some updated updated research on genetics um, and a few of the questions that you had had given me. So can you tell us maybe like as you have new patients come in, what is the typical counseling that you give them um, as far as the role of genetics with uveal melanoma and, you know, having it in your eye and how that is related to everything else? Sure. So things have changed dramatically over the last um, 10, 15 years, I would say, in terms of the way we approach genetics with patients and what we emphasize in our discussions with patients. You know, I think for perspective, when I was in training, when I started training 20 years ago, we really didn't know anything about the genetics of this disease, certainly not in a clinically applicable way. So we would sort of say to patients, you know, we don't know, you know, you might live or die. It's kind of a coin flip, you know, best of luck kind of thing. And, you know, our understanding of this has really changed dramatically, um, you know, in the years since. So, 
now, you know, we understand what kind of molecular events occur deep down inside this tumor that make it start and what makes it continue. And for some patients, you know, what make these tumors aggressive and make them want to exit out of the eye and go to the liver and in some cases other places. So um, that helps us understand how the disease occurs and kind of predict in many, many cases, you know, what will happen to patients, which is, you know, incredibly valuable and powerful and important information for patients. So our algorithm at our center is that we offer every patient a biopsy. Not every single patient chooses to do it, but I would say more than 97 or 98% do. Biopsies are very safe um, in the hands of oncologists who do many of them. And because that's really a very key part of my practice, that's, you know, one of the major things that we offer at our center. You know, we are comfortable doing biopsies in really almost every single patient very safely. There are very limited additional risks that biopsies pose to patients above and beyond the risk that whatever therapy we're doing already poses. So, like, just as far as the different therapies that you guys propose, you guys have, I'm guessing, just the same the same kind of standard of care as we've got. We've got brachytherapy or proton beam radiation, and then a nucleation depending on the size of the tumor and the severity of, of what it's already done to the eye. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then there are, you know, some other treatments and clinical trials as well. Yes. And I've heard of some of those. Are those, uh, I guess, just for the sake of conversation, because we haven't really talked about any of those yet, are those those clinical trial treatments something that you're familiar with or that you guys have uh, been working on at your location? Yes. Yes. We're talking about a company. Yeah. There's a company called Aura Biosciences, um, which is based out of okay, Boston. Okay. Awesome. And um, so, they have an experimental uh, non-surgical treatment that's in clinical trials right now. That's awesome. Do you, I guess this is kind of a slightly off topic, but is that, is that something like how, how do you kind of go about counseling patients with figuring out which of these options would be the best for them? Or do you just kind of offer the whole menu? So first of all, it depends on the patient, right? As you said, not every patient is a candidate for every therapy, right? The AU11, which is the experimental therapy from Aura, is really mostly being offered at this time to patients with pretty small tumors that are very close to the macula and optic nerve. That type of patient wouldn't be, for example, the same type of patient who would be an appropriate candidate for nucleation, for example, right? So there, there are some patients in the middle in which multiple treatments might be overlapping, might be appropriate for them, but not every patient is going to be eligible for so the counseling really depends on the particular patient, how, where's the tumor located, how big is the tumor, and as you said, what kind of effects has the tumor had on the eye so far. So for example, if you have a patient who has a very large tumor that has created a lot of anatomic destruction in the eye, or let's say has invaded the part of the eye that controls eye pressure, which is often kind of occurs in a kind of a 360 degree circumferential fashion. So it's involved the eye in a way that all of those areas cannot be addressed with radiation, that might be a patient who, where we would feel that a nucleation would be more appropriate, that kind of thing. So it really depends on the nuances of the particular patient and, and what the tumor has done so far, as you said. So the counseling for the clinical trial is only for patients who are appropriate, you know, appropriately eligible for it. And if the patient is eligible, we talk about it and talk about the alternative traditional treatments. And we talk all about the data that's available on those treatments so far, um, what the side effects are that we're aware of so far, what the limitations are in terms of long-term data, because of course, anytime you're doing something that is 
experimental. You don't have long-term data the way we do on traditional treatments. And we talk about the path we take if the experimental treatment doesn't work and the monitoring that we do, even if it is working. Well, and then really patients always have the, have the opportunity to make their own decision and try and also to change their mind down the road. I feel like that's such an important thing to realize just with everything in this is that you, you reserve as a patient, like we reserve the right to change our mind and we, we all have that. And so I love hearing you talk about that because just, I feel like it, it helps to hear a doctor also say, this is what you should be doing as a patient. Like you should be able to say no to something that you don't like the sound of say yes to something different with obviously the caveat that, like you said, if something goes wrong or it doesn't go as well as you'd hoped that things can be adjusted. Okay, so talk to us just a little bit about like with uh, with biopsies. You mentioned you offer a biopsy to all patients, and you you said maybe roughly ninety seven, ninety eight percent of the patients that you treat do opt to have the biopsy done. Um, so do you do you always do the biopsy during the treatment procedure, or do you ever offer the biopsy first, or you know how does that how does that look? Right, that's a terrific question. Um, so. The vast majority of the time, we do it at the same time as the treatment. There are some limited situations where we do it separately. And the way that generally works on our service is if we have a rare patient who has a growth in the eye that we're not 100% sure is uveal melanoma, which doesn't happen commonly, but does happen rarely, we will often do a diagnostic biopsy first to actually confirm the diagnosis. Because, of course, we never want to do a treatment like brachytherapy or nucleation to something that may not be a uveal melanoma at all, right? We wanna make sure we get the diagnosis correct 100% of the time. So whenever there's any doubt, we do do a diagnostic biopsy first. That's not common, as I said, but rarely. There are also some limited situations where we will offer patients a prognostic biopsy first, and then based on what that shows, they decide whether or not they want to go ahead with therapy. Again, that's not a common scenario, but it does happen rarely. And I would say the situation that happens in most commonly are patients who are quite elderly. You know, maybe they're in what we think is just the last couple of years of their lives and um, they might choose not to do treatment at all if the genetics show that the tumor is pretty non-aggressive. Again, those are really the minority of situations. The majority of patients we biopsy at the same time as we do treatment. Okay. So as far as the importance of the biopsies, um, I guess, why do you personally feel like in all of your research and your time in the field, why do you feel like the biopsy is very important for patients to have access to, if at all possible? So the information that we gain from the biopsy tells us about primarily prognostic information, right? So it helps us understand what's the patient's risk or likelihood that before we met the patient, some of those cells escaped out of the eye and got into the hematogenous system, into the systemic circulation, and might be hiding out somewhere in the body, most commonly in the liver, where we can't see them. So non-radiographically evident disease, meaning maybe there's one or two or three cells hanging out in the liver, not enough to be able to see on imaging, like an MRI, but enough that they're there and could cause problems down the road. So that's what the biopsy tells us. It tells us a, a statistical likelihood that we're in that scenario or not. It has been my experience over um, many years of doing this that that information is very valuable to patients. And in the vast majority of cases is information that patients tell us afterward they are glad they have. They, they don't regret having the information. They're glad they have had the information. There have actually been a couple of, co of my colleagues around the country have done studies looking at this 
with mixed results, some patients stating later that they have regret they have the information, some patients saying they're happy. But my personal experience has been that patients are happy they have the information, no matter which way the test goes. So it's useful information for patients' sense and understanding of their own disease. And then it also helps us in various ways. So it helps us plan our metastatic screening schedule, meaning how often are we looking in patients' bodies to see if full-blown metastases develop. In some cases, it helps us choose patients who are eligible for clinical trials um, of medications in either what's called the adjuvant setting, which is before radiographically evident disease is present, or in the metastatic setting. And also in helping us understand from scientific perspective what is happening with the disease. So we learn a tremendous amount from patients from understanding what their genetics are and then what happens to them later. And so it's good for an individual patient, it's good for science broadly, and it's powerful information. So all of that combined with the fact that the biopsies are very safe is why we typically encourage patients to do them. But, you know, it has been my style uh, for many years, you know, that you know, I don't think medicine should be paternalistic. If a patient says to me, I just don't want it for one reason or another, then we don't do it. We certainly never force patients to do anything. So patients always have, have a choice. Oh, I think that's, that's really good to know. Like, and like you said, it's, it's helpful in all of these different ways. Um, and also for science, but also, also like the, like you said, the choice still rests with the patient to decide if they're going to move forward with the biopsy or not kind of having, but I think having this information is so important, like knowing what can come from the biopsy. Right. The other point I think important to make is that, um, that often come up on, um, you know, patient discussions we have. And I think this came up in a discussion I did with your group recently is that you can't do the biopsy later. So there's been a lot of false information kind of spread around the patient community about that. So you, you cannot come back one or two or five years later and say, oh, now I want to do the biopsy. Now, once the tumor is treated, the information that can be gained from a biopsy is not reliable. So it's really kind of a one opportunity situation. Yeah, and sure. the final thing I would add about this is that I've had some patients over the years who have said, okay, I want to do the biopsy and I want you to get the information, but I don't feel I'm ready to kind of handle that or process that. So can you hold the information for me? And I might ask you about it later. So that's also something we've done for a handful of patients over the years and that works fine too. But that way we, we get the information so that if they want it later, we do have it because we don't get it at the time before treatment we can't get it later yeah no that's such a such a good point and I think that in some ways sometimes I wish I had done that like just because of the nature of what my biopsy ended up sharing but um but like it I think that just just knowing that that's an option um and just knowing that you know that there's people out there there's doctors out there who present it like this and say okay look this is why it's important and if you don't really want to know the information, but you want us to have the information so that we can monitor you and we can just, you know, we, we can just tell you when you're ready kind of a thing. I think that that can be, that can be helpful for some people. But yeah, I think the, the misinformation about, you know, can I go back and have a biopsy done later? I think maybe that stems from some of the new tests that have been coming out that have been saying, you know, we can test your existing stored tissue. Like if you have a biopsy that was done, say, five or six years ago, and we still have it in storage, then if there's enough, we can do a new test on that same tissue. That's the only thing I can think of, of where that rumor might have been, or that myth might have been coming from. Um, so that that is true. The commercially available tests can be performed on paraffin embedded tissue or fresh tissue that's frozen. That is certainly true. Now, I would say for the majority of patients who have fine needle aspiration biopsies, there is often not enough left over in many centers. Now, 
the caveat to that is that in our center, we actually take extra tissue for every single patient and bank it. Um, we have a biobank and we bank it and we keep an extra specimen for every single patient in case there's a new scientific development in the future that the patient kind of wants extra tissue of their own for and that the patient actually has the rights and owns that tissue. So it's just kind of a nice thing that we think is terrific for patients for future developments. And we've already had patients use that for recent um, tests that have been developed over just the last couple of years. So that is an option. But what I was referring to, which is certainly something that is also circled around the patient community is the idea of, I didn't have a biopsy and I want to go back mm. and have a biopsy after the fact. And that is not a scientifically valid option. Okay. Well, that is good. Good to hear and good to know. And just kind of to put that, lay the record straight, so to speak. Okay. So talk to us a little bit. I know, I guess you kind of already talked about this, but as far as the genetics and the tests that are done, where do you, where do you and your, like, I guess your profession, like, where do you send those biopsies to and what kinds of tests are done on them? Like genetically, I guess if you could kind of say it in layman's terms, like what are, what are the gist of these tests and why, like, why are they done? Sure. So there are, there's one major commercial company in the U S that does this testing as the, as you know, I think most patients are aware, which is Castle Biosciences, who I know you mentioned, I guess, help sponsor this podcast. There's also a company in Canada called Impact that does testing for this disease as well. We work with Castle Biosciences for various reasons, and, and they, they, they process the majority of the specimens in the United States. So their primary test is something called gene expression profiling, or GEP, which I think most patients have, are pretty educated about these days. And so what that test is, is it's a 15-gene PCR assay. So they look at 15 genes. Three genes are control genes, meaning they're just done to kind of make sure the test is scientifically valid. And 12 are what are called experimental genes, meaning those are the key genes that they're looking at. What they do is basically look at these 12 genes and say, okay, are these genes overexpressed or underexpressed compared to normal in this individual patient's tumor? And so they end up with a kind of a series of readouts, right? Gene one, overexpressed, gene two, underexpressed, and so forth, and, you know, at different levels. And all of those values are then fed into a computer algorithm that kind of spits out a score, essentially. And what that score is, is a sort of a meaningful value that expresses that the patient is low risk, medium risk, or high risk. And what the riskiness is, is it represents the likelihood that that patient is in that scenario I described, where one or two or three cells might have gotten out of the eye before we met the patient and treated the patient and be hanging out primarily most of the time in the liver where we can't see it. So it's low risk for that scenario, medium risk for that scenario, or high risk. And the letters and numbers that correspond to those three categories are the 1A, the 1B, and the 2, right? So 1A is low, 1B is medium, class 2 is high. Now, keep in mind, that these, you know, science is always moving forward and marching forward um, all the time. We all, all of us who are deeply engaged in this disease and in research in this disease are always working hard to, you know, improve our science and improve what we understand and better our technology. And so, you know, I think if I were sitting here with you 10 years from now, the system will likely be different, right? We're going to keep improving on it and changing it and modifying it. So it, w it won't stay that way forever. But for now, that's the system that we use. And then there are additional tests that have been developed over the past five or so years as well. So there is a antigen, a tumor antigen called PRAME, which many of our listeners have probably read about. PRAME is an antigen which is actually normally expressed on the surface of testis cells, but 
in the case of cancer patients, both uveal melanoma and other cancers, it can be aberrantly expressed, overexpressed. And it's when it is, it's a sign um, that the cells are more aggressive. So that test you can kind of think of as a kind of an on and an off, positive or negative. So you get, every patient gets a report back that says prime positive or prime negative. If it's negative, meaning the cells are not expressing that particular antigen, it's sort of a neutral, a neutral finding. If it's positive, it tells us that, hey, these cells might be a little more aggressive. There's a chance they might have gotten out. So tell us a little bit about, like you mentioned, you mentioned the 1A, 1B, and and 2 for the classes or the kind of categories that these tumors can be genetically assigned. Tell us a little bit more about like some of the newer, like Prame, I know we, we said is a little bit newer. And are there any other newer genetic tests that can be done, you know, at the time or slightly before treatment in, you know, the majority of them, I know we, are, we know they're, they're done at the time of treatment. So for these biopsies of the eye tumor. So the final test I would say that is done sometimes that is commercially available for clinical patients, not in a research setting, but a fully clinical setting is a testing called next generation sequencing, which I think many patients have learned about now. So what next generation sequencing does is it actually looks at mutations in very specific genes that we know are involved in the pathogenesis of this tumor, right? So what happens deep down in the DNA of these cells that makes the tumor start to happen at the very, very beginning? And then what happens that makes it kind of flip over into a more aggressive type of cancer? So there are a handful of mutations or misprints in the DNA that occur as what we call initiating mutations, meaning what gets the tumor started to even kind of become a, a, a nevus to begin with. And then what we call driver mutations, which are mutations that kind of flip it over into you know what we think of as a malignant tumor. So we look at all of those mutations in this testing and are able to come back and say, okay, to a particular patient, you have a mutation in, let's say, for example, a gene called EIF1AX. And that is a mutation that we know is like a less aggressive mutation that makes the tumor not that likely to get out of the eye and go to the liver and gives us reassurance that um, the patient's genetics are less aggressive and drives the patients toward more of like a class one type picture. So the next generation sequencing, I would say, is sort of a complement to the 1A, 1B, 2 system, and then it helps us, helps reassure us about our confidence about um, the biology of the tumor, and in some cases um, gives us even additional information. And so those are really broadly the three categories of um, information that we get. We get the GEP, we get the PRAME expression, and we get the next generation sequencing. Again, important to remember that you know, science is always marching forward. So I suspect, you know, five or 10 years from now, a lot of this information will all be wrapped up into kind of a brand new system with a big red bow on it that, you know, looks much more cohesive than what we have now. Um, but, you know, what is important for patients to remember is that, you know, it's just a process. We're constantly improving and changing and getting better and and making, you know, our understanding of the disease deeper. So it's a it's a moving target. Oh, I think that's important to remember is, like you said, it's a moving target and it's changing and updates are coming. And I mean, it wouldn't be research if it wasn't changing all the time. Um, so are there any other, like any other developments in research um, and in genetics, research genetics, any of that that you want to like just share briefly about that we haven't already covered? Um, 
Well, we we at our center and others are working very hard behind the scenes studying the genetics of this disease. Um, and much of the work that we're doing is still, you know, unpublished and in process. So most of that I can't share publicly. But, you know, what we're working on broadly is, you know, understanding not only the genetic changes that we see that I, you know, mentioned already, but of course, how can we inc improve our understanding of these genetic changes to, you know, pivot them into tar into creating targeted therapies, obviously, which is at the end of the day what we want as treatments for patients. Um, and another thing that we're working on at our center um, a lot, which is kind of a m less mainstream topic, is understanding um, better um, patients who um, are in uh, who inherit a mutation in a familial fashion. Um, in which not only the patient himself or herself is at risk of developing this disease, but others in the family are at risk. And that's a syndrome called BAP1 tumor predisposition syndrome, which is not that common among our patient population, but is um, really instructive scientifically and genetically um, to help us understand even patients who don't have this syndrome. And we're working really hard at learning from those patients at our center as well. And we do that not only by looking at their biopsies, but by um, collecting blood samples, from those patients over time and studying those blood samples in great detail. So, yes. you know, lots of exciting things I think will be coming out over the next five, 10 years, um, you know, with, with respect to all this work, what we and others are doing. Well, and I feel like just for me, like that's always, it's always just re reassuring to hear, like, even if we, if we don't know all the details of it yet, cause like you said, it's not published, like it is still just helpful to know that it's happening. Like there is, there is stuff happening behind the scenes. There's a lot of, a lot of research happening behind the scenes that we just haven't heard about yet because this is just how research works. Like the scientific community can't go out and share like, Oh, look what we found until they, you know, do all of the, the steps to verify it and to, um, peer review it and all the things. So I appreciate the work that you guys are doing in this field, and I'm sure the rest of our patient community is appreciative too. <laughs> um, well, I think you can. What's so interesting recently in in the popular sphere, right, is you can see what happens when scientific developments are shared with the public um, before they're completely mature, um, and that was mostly in COVID, right? So science is complicated and always changing, and um, we we change what we believe as our data becomes more complete. And that's actually part of the scientific process. But I think for lay people who, you know, don't spend their own lives doing this, a lot of times it can feel confusing and it can feel sometimes even like things are contradictory, right? And we saw that with the pandemic um, a lot, right? And so part of the reason why we often don't want our findings released prematurely is because we don't want to create either false hope or false negative information either when our full understanding isn't there yet because we need time to um, confirm findings scientifically or do additional experiments that help us um, have a deeper understanding of what we're seeing and so forth. So science is slow, but it's important to be slow so that it's, you know, accurate. Well, and if we're, I mean, if we're honest, like it's slow is relative. <laughs> slow is relative because right. 30 years ago, we didn't have any of this. And um, right. And if, you know, if we did, it was, it was, it was in the research phases, it was still being studied. It hadn't been like the, the way to treat eye tumors was take the eye out or hope you survive. Like that was, that was your options if they even found them. Um, so, I mean, it's slow, but also 
but also relatively fast in some, in some ways. Um, it's just, I think in the moment we, I don't know about you, but I feel like our society, I very much have a little bit of like a microwave mentality that like, I want everything to happen as fast as it can happen on a microwave. But like, sometimes it's a crock pot and it just has to sit for a while and you got to let it like really figure itself out over time and, and obviously let the research happen. So, um, okay. I guess my last question for you here is, uh, we, we've heard more, you know, obviously recently because they just barely got FDA approved about the drug with Immunicor, the Kimchak, um, that has been approved for metastatic disease and treatment for the, the kind of smaller population or maybe not smaller, but just a very narrow population of the, the HLA one, um, and two, or I, I can't remember the exact specifics of it, but the HLA but O2O1. Positive or negative? Mm-hmm. 0201. Okay. HLA 0201. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how, like what you've heard about that and, um, and how you see it being integrated in your practice in the future or how you, maybe you would like to hope that it could become integrated? Sure, of course. Um, so first of all, I would say, you know, um, this is a very exciting development for us and for our patients. You know, I think, keep in mind, this is literally the first treatment we've had FDA approval for for metastatic disease. So even though it's not perfect, and I'll, I'll get to what the limitations are in a moment, you know, it's worth taking a moment to celebrate the idea that we have even one thing to offer because it's been many, many years that we have had nothing. And so um, that's a big deal. And particularly for a community, a small community like ours with a disease that's rare, it's great to have a pharmaceutical company engage with us and actually go all the way from phase one to taking something to market because it brings um, it brings attention to our disease and to um, this community and and that's what you know we need we 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 kind of fall in the dark shadows behind more common cancers like breast cancer and lung cancer don't get a lot of attention in terms of national attention and funding and whatnot so. You know, this is a great development for us. Um, you know, and I think a lot of us are hopeful that this will lead to, you know, more engagement from pharma and um, continuing to move our field forward. So, so that's my kind of general hopeful message to start. Um, with respect to this drug specifically, so you're right. It is only only patients who have a certain HLA subtype. In this case, the zero two zero one subtype are eligible and what that is is that is just it's just 50 percent of the population across the board just have that particular subtype of white blood cells that enable them to be candidates for this medicine so you kind of are you aren't your medical oncologist um you know can do the test to see if you're a candidate for this medication and what we do at our center now is we actually test all high-risk patients so patients who are class two or have other high-risk genetic markers. We just test them at the very beginning, so we know already in advance whether they're eligible. And so if your genetic testing comes back HLA-0201 and we know you're eligible, this is a medication which is currently FDA-approved just for metastatic disease. So you can't take it if, for example, you are class 2, but you but your, but your liver is clean, your liver and your other organ systems are clean radiographically. So it's not used in what we call the adjuvant setting, meaning we're worried something might be there, but we can't see it yet. It can only be used currently for patients who already have radiographically evidence disease. So once you have metastatic disease on imaging, then you're eligible for the medication. And it is a 
Medication that is given as an inpatient for the first three infusions, meaning for the first couple times you take it, you have to be admitted to the hospital. And that's to manage the side effects, which tend to be the most severe <coughs> in the first few cycles. After that, patients are able to do it um, typically on an outpatient basis, but for the first couple times, they're typically admitted. And um, believe it or not, the, the most pervasive and kind of prominent side effect patients have in the beginning is actually very severe itching. Um, and although itching seems like not that big a deal, it can be incredibly... Oh, it is a big um, deal. Incredibly As someone who has like sensitive skin, if I get itchy anywhere, and my kids are the same way, I can't think. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and obviously it's severe enough that patients need, you know, medications to control it and whatnot. So, um, but... Um, in the phase three trial, which was published um, a few months ago, um, the data was very promising in terms of extending survival in this group of patients. And I think most of our melanoma medical oncologists, um, you know, would tell you that, um, you know, as I said before, science is always marching forward. So the data is very promising. And in fact, it may be the case as time goes by that the medication will be used not only alone but in combination with other agents which may even enhance its efficacy um, and so forth. So we haven't even seen kind of the best of what it can do yet most likely but it's certainly um, you know putting us on the right path of being able to offer something and you know our hope certainly is that any patient who is eligible for this will know that that he or she is a candidate for it, and then if and when the patient develops metastatic disease, you know that we can obviously offer it to every single patient. The The complexities of this, you know, I think are going to come into play with respect to where patients live in the community type they live in. So, you know, it's probably not going to be available at least right away in, you know, small towns and rural areas and that kind of thing. It'll probably be mostly at large academic centers that are concentrating on this disease. It may be the case that over time, you know, it'll be more readily available in smaller communities. But I would say in the beginning, you know, <clears throat> it'll probably more, be more accessible, um, you know, just in large centers. Interestingly, um, in the very early going, just in the first couple of months, one of the challenges of getting this drug to patients has been COVID-related shipping delays. You know, I'm sure everyone's heard about all of these issues. Um, you know, forget with medications, like with some, you know, piece of furniture you order at your house, right? There have been all these crazy um, manufacturing and shipping complexities around the globe related to the pandemic, and, and believe it or not, drugs are no different. So there have been a lot of interesting challenges that um, are not related to the company or the medication or anything, but, um, you know, obviously those things will sort themselves out as time goes by. But um, we're, you know, excited to be working with Immunocor on getting this drug to patients and, um, you know, and hoping to extend survival and, um, you know, for some of our sickest patients. So, so just from like maybe a, a theoretical or a hypothetical standpoint, do you do you feel like there could be hope or could be could be room for researching this drug in an adjuvant setting, or do you feel like we're not there yet? Oh, so it's a wonderful question and a very logical question, and um, that is happening as we speak. So, um, Aminocor is working on adjuvant trial designs. Um, our research group, Coop2, and others are um, working together with them to help them come up with the design for that trial and make sure that it is done in a scientifically valid fashion. And I think you're going to see 
that type of trial come to fruition over the next year. So that's good to know. Um, Just kind yeah. of to keep that on our radar that that, that so yeah, definitely you know, something that is slated to be coming. Definitely something that is slated to be coming. There are, as you can imagine, complexities with adjuvant trials that don't exi- for, exist for metastatic disease trials. So, for example, <clears throat> even though it seems like, well, gee, you know, wouldn't you want to intervene when a patient is less sick, right? I mean, the earlier is better, right? Um, believe it or not, from a scientific perspective, it's harder to get meaningful results in an adjuvant setting because how do you prove that a drug is working, right? You in this case, you prove it by having the patient not develop metastatic disease, but you take a patient who enters an adjuvant trial, they don't have metastatic disease radiographically, then how and they do you know exit the trial not <laughs> having disease metagraph. And so it's so you have to have a very large number of patients, very rich data, and a very large number of patients to prove that the drug had an effect. And so essentially what you have to do is you have to what we call enrich your trial with patients who are very, very high risk, who you expect, in whom you expect, to have a very high rate of developing metastatic disease. So you'd have to have, for example, a trial design where you have all class two patients, right, who you're very worried mm-hmm. all are class most two def- HLA 01 and 02, like positive. O2 exactly. O- O2, and potentially even all the other markers we know make you mm-hmm. high risk too, like prime positive. And so first of all, you have a, a group of patients who you really have to select from only the very most high risk groups. And then the results have to be really quite positive to prove that the drug made a difference. So Historically, many companies have shied away from adjuvant trials because they're afraid that it's going to be really hard to prove efficacy. Um, you know, and let's be honest, drug companies want to do things that are going to make the money. And so, um, but we have really encouraged Immunocor, and I think they have also been very enthusiastic about, you know, really pushing this through and trying because we need it, patients want it, it's important, and because we think hopefully, you know, it might work. So. I think that's um, something that is brewing behind the scenes and I'm really hopeful will be um, coming to fruition at some point soon. Well, I think that's amazing and I, I just feel like it's it's just helpful to hear you know, about, about everything that's kind of going on behind the scenes and that it, there is so much happening, um, so much that has promise like in, in a lot of people's you know, professional opinions, like that just, there's a lot of things happening that, that are showing, showing that kind of um, there's a word engagement. for it. Like, engagement. Yeah, that engagement. Um, and like you said, I think I think one of the, the coolest things, aside from the fact that, you know, this roughly 50% of the population, like you said, that has the HL0201, um, HLA0201 uh, marker, will be able to have access to this if and when they need it. But also, like you said, that, that because this big pharmaceutical company has taken this on and has taken it from, from beginning to... Um, to release of FDA approval that it will it will make it so that more and more um, companies we get maybe I guess I would hope for more more coverage in in the medical um, the medical field so that we get more funding and more more research can happen and can kind of move um, move forward at a better pace for patients so that you know so that we can see the benefits of the research so one one I'll give you one real world example of exactly what you just said is <clears throat> You know, as you probably know, and many of our patient listeners know, one of the things that insurance companies have been um, very tough on um, physicians and patients about over the last decade is um, metastatic screening imaging, right? So if you're a patient who, even even a class two patient, where your melanoma medical oncologist recommends 
let's say an MRI every, you know, let's say four months, oftentimes the insurance company will say no, they'll deny it, they'll just deny it. And our melanoma medical oncology colleagues spend, in some cases, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of hours on the phone with insurance companies arguing and fighting on behalf of our patients, explaining to these companies why this is important and why we need to understand when metastatic disease develops and because there's a fraction of our patients, even before Immunocore, where we could you know, intervene if there were just very small foci of metastatic disease early and make a difference. But the insurance companies would say, listen, there's no FDA-approved therapy. It's not going to change your management. We're not going to pay for it. Once we get to a place, in my opinion, in which we do have FDA-approved therapy, it's going to make it much more difficult for insurance companies to block things like metastatic screening images because we can turn to them and say, hey, you're actually wrong about this, right? We have an FDA-approved therapy, and we would institute it earlier if we got an imaging study that showed that a patient had disease in their liver sooner. So part of the victory of having FDA-approved therapy, even in the metastatic setting, forget the adjuvant setting, is, is being able to you know, put the squeeze on insurance companies to, to do the right Oh, that's awesome. And I feel like that's, that's definitely a battle that, I mean, you, I, I know that you know, just with your, your patient demographic of all the people you work with. Um, I thankfully have not had that issue myself, but I know so many other patients who have a really so hard time patients. getting getting their scans. So many patients. And like you said, it's so critical. It's so critical to find anything. I mean, eye tumor aside, if anything happens in the liver and the lungs, it is so critical to find it as early as possible for the best results, for the best time because that's really what we need like with with this disease like if any if anything we just we need more time and we need we need patients who do go metastatic to have the time for these treatments to become available for research to happen that moves things forward and makes it more possible for more time and then hopefully more time equals a cure eventually is kind of my hope um but it's just that little like an extra year an extra six months an extra 18 months like those things add up um, and I feel like that's, you know, you can't get that back and you, you can't, um, you can't trade that. Like there's, there's no, like, there's no value on that. That's enough. Like we, we love that. So, um, well, I can't think of anything else that I wanted to discuss with you. Is there anything else you want to share to close out? No, I think that's it. It's been great, um, talking with you. Hopefully patients will, you know, find this informative. Um, and, you know, always happy to come back down the road and answer any questions patients have. Um, yeah, I feel like that's going to be one of the coolest terrific. things is, like you said, as research continues that we can we can check back in and we can say, okay, like For sure. now what's new? <laughs> For sure. And um, I know you're working with the Coog study, so we're definitely excited. I know we're just kind of like on our seats hoping and, and waiting to hear more about that because I know that's coming. Um, we'll have a lot of data coming out over the next year, a lot of publications um, kind of exploring in great detail all the many findings that we have um, because it's been – you know, a huge, long, extended effort, and there are, you know, 1,700 patients in this study, so it's a massive, massive data set. And, um, you know, in addition to the genetic data that we will benefit from from our study, <clears throat> one of the huge benefits of our group is that, you know, it was also an exercise in getting ocular oncologists and melanoma medical oncologists together to sort of create a framework and a network of groups that you know, work well together and have a structure and, um, you know, have worked through all the kinks of clinical research, which are complicated, um, to sort of be a very functional platform. And now we hope to use that platform to harness, um, you know, to to get clinical trials done um, of actual, you know, treatments in the future. So 
um, we're looking forward to that too. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm excited to hear more and um, we will definitely have to check back in. Um, so thank you again, Dr. Scheffler. Hope you enjoy Terrific. the rest thank of your you vacation. So um, I and appreciate will... it. Enjoy your vacation next week. Yeah, thank you. We will have you back soon or we'll just hear back from, you know, kind of what's going on um, sometime in the next year. Okay, terrific. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences and produced by Agora Media. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.